Open is supported by Renaissance Bank. The support of partners like Renaissance Bank allows us to bring you high-quality journalism. This is Emma Kent. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Open. We wanted to bring you a new bonus episode, a discussion that we had on uh, one of the Daily Journal's other podcasts called The Memo. It's a news podcast. Um, We sat down with crime reporter William Moore and editor Rod Wajardo and Open's producer, Chris Kiefer, um, and just talked a little bit more about the behind the scenes work we did to get this podcast together, um, and, and William's work for some of our print coverage that went along with it. So we hope you enjoy that discussion and, uh, here it is. All right. So here is Rod Wajardo who's going to moderate our discussion today. Rod, how's it going? Going well. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here and talk about the work both these fine reporters did on, on the series, um, both Emma with the podcast and William with the coverage in print, um, you know, just want to take a minute to, to talk about how proud I am of them and the work that they did. Uh, you know, I mentioned this in my column on Sunday, but I do really think that, that the work that we've put out, uh, both in terms of the podcast and the print, just really showcase um, some quality in-depth journalism. So I want to give them a, a round of applause. Chris, you can add background audience class <laughs> later. So. I know how to do bleeps now. Oh, there you go. That is true. So Chris got his tutorial on bleeps through this podcast. But anyway, I thought this was a great idea to sort of take this moment to go a little behind the scenes and, and pick y'all's brain on on what it was like to report these stories. And, you know, even though this case is 25 years old, as both y'all mentioned uh, in our coverage, it's still something that gets talked about so much in Tupelo. Um, everyone has some sort of connection to it, whether they knew her, they knew the family, or, you know, they just got to Tupelo and immediately heard the story of uh, of this 13-year-old girl who went missing and, and why there's not much more information about it. So, um, you know, Emma, what was that like for you just, you know, having moved to town, you know, having your mother-in-law tell you about this, and then, you know, did that just sort of always resonate in your mind and her stories about the about Lee that morning? It's just, it's just one of those story. I mean, it's just an interesting story she tells, um, and that she told, I, I'm sure, I think I probably heard it before I ever moved here anyway, just, you know, um, just from Jacob or from, mm-hmm. you know, from her or whatever, but it's definitely makes it more interesting kind of having a sort of a personal connection, um, and just hearing her tell that story because she, you know, it's obviously stuck with her for a long time. You know, of course, I wasn't here. I wasn't even alive when it happened, but um, but it's one of those things. And then, you know, also Jacob, my husband, who grew up in Tupelo, he um, and all of his friends from high school, I mean, they grew up hearing about Lee Ochi and they grew up talking about it and, um, you know, hearing about it from their parents. And so, um, you know, that's kind of an interesting 
other aspect of it, just mm-hmm. it's it's very much still on, like you said, on the minds of people. Right. Um, even all these years later, and even people who like weren't even barely alive. I mean, most of them were like a year old or mm-hmm. something like that, but they still talk yeah. about it. Um, it's we, one of those mysteries. It's almost like an urban legend kind right. of thing yeah. where, where folks re- remember it, whether, you know, if they were around at the time, they remember it, you know, and other folks hear about it later and want to know more and just the fact that there's not that much information. Right. I mean, for me personally, you know, this was actually the first time I've got to write about this. Mm-hmm. I mean, the disappearance happened two months before I got into the newspaper business full time. Mm-hmm. And even though I worked here in Lee County, you know, and... I, mean, I was working for a weekly paper. Somebody else always ended up doing the story on Leo Chimwim when, when Donald came to town, you know, the anniversaries and stuff. So, I mean, actually, this was my very first time to write about it. So, I mean, it's one of those things, you know, just sitting sort of on the sideline reading other people's stuff and remembering different bits and pieces. You know, I had some preconceived notions in my head, you know, just because that's the way I remembered things happening. Sure. You know, and as you actually start sitting down and talking to people, you start realizing, well, you know, you know, that part wasn't true, right? And you learn a little bit more and say, all right, well, that wasn't true. And, you know, as you delve deeper into it, you start to see, well, there a lot of the information out there is actually disinformation. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, there's just lots of rumors and reports and it's, you know, people have these yeah. you know, heartfelt feelings. I was sure. going to say, it's kind of what you said about about it being an urban legend almost. It's like people, and that was one of the things that I think we wanted to do with the podcast was try to break through that a little bit. Um, and and it was difficult to go through. I had to go back and read all the stories and find, kind of try to nail down like what is what actually are the facts of the case. I mean, that's, and I'm sure you did had to do the same thing. I mean, it's, there's so much information out there, but it's not all of it is, um, like William said, accurate. And Because and a lot then, of times you see information that somebody has said something and then it gets rehashed over and over. And by the time it gets, yeah, you know, a place where you can look it back up now, it's it's been gone through so many different hands. Right. Yeah. It's it sort of distorted somewhat. I mean, so that's what we're saying. You know, we both had to go back to original sources to try to find out accurate information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I went back to Rick Hammond, our former crime reporter who was covering the case um, at the time. And you can hear him in the podcast too, but I I went back and read his stories because I felt like that was, you know, that was the easiest way for me to figure out this is what, this is what happened. And this is sort of how the events unfolded. Mm-hmm. And rather than hearing from this person and that person, and you know, it's been 25 years memories, can be a little, a little cloudy. Yeah, I think it's been interesting for those of us in the newsroom to have watched the bound volumes stack up on your desk. <laughs> it, it seemed like every day there was a new one there, and you I were, need to take you them were thumbing back through. Into the, into <laughs> Make sure you morgue. get them back to the morgue. But, I know. Uh, no, I thought that was a, a certainly a great first approach. Obviously, you want to go back to, you know, the stories that were originally reported. I think Rick has done a fantastic job. Did a fantastic job back then, and also is is a big part of the podcast. Um, Hearing his point of view now, 25 years later, is certainly important. But, you know, going back and for both of y'all, I mean, even although you weren't working here, you're still part of the community. But reading those stories, I'm sure, helped put you in the in the time and place and frame of mind um, of what it was like. And I'm sure you, you can know, speak I, you to know, that. You'll talk to the police, you know, 
Yeah, and the investigators, you know, you have to sit there and stop and go back 25 years ago. You know, everybody now, there's a crime, everybody starts talking about, all right, well, let's get DNA samples. You know, well, back then, they didn't have, or DNA was just in very much in its infancy, basically. Mm-hmm. If somebody had blood, they typed it. I mean, it was either A, B, or O, mm-hmm. positive or negative. I mean, that was pretty much what they could do. Mm-hmm. And if there were hair samples, they would look at it under a microscope and say, all right, well, this hair is similar to another hair. Yeah. Yeah, so the techniques, the forensics has changed, you know, over the past 25 years. Sure. So you have to sit there and try to go, you know, folks always, I've always for years have heard folks complain, well, you know, the police did a slipshod job on mm-hmm. it. But, I mean, there wasn't that much evidence there. And, you know, and techniques weren't what they are today. I mean, that's the thing, you know, folks look at cases from 25 years ago using today's glasses. You know, they sit there and think, all right, well, you know, now, you know, if there's a minute, you know, pinhead of blood, you know, you know, nowadays we can get that sample, they can test it, find out who it belongs to, you know, without a doubt. You know, it took them until, what, three, four years ago before they, you know, were able to send some of the evidence back to the FBI lab and get a blood test workup done to get a actual DNA profile of Lee, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, which is, it's something nice, but, you know, now they have to wait to have something to compare it to, you know, either everybody or somebody coming forward and saying, you know, I'm Lee Ochi. Right. Right. Yeah. Side note on just the whole DNA discussion. Um, it, we interviewed his name is uh, Dr. Larry Kobolinski, and he is a very, very smart man. Um, and he teaches at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, I think. In um, I think that's the correct name in New York City. But anyway, when we interviewed him, he was explaining all of this. I mean, I think he started at the very beginning and just gave us the whole lowdown on DNA and all this stuff. And like me and Chris were just staring at each other like what is what is going on i mean it was so over our heads we had to go back and really sort of research and go through it and and break it down but uh he's a very smart man it was very interesting how many times do you have to practice saying polymerase for your narration i think probably 10 (laughs) i said it over and over and over again because i I didn't want to do it wrong we had to look it up on on google and and Cure, find an audio clip of it to make sure I pronounce it right. right. Yeah. That's not how it looked. That sounds like what do we say? It sounds like the um, Polymeries. you go to a party and you're trying to impress somebody, and it looked like it should be polymeries or something. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah, it was we had fun with that one. Yeah, that was an it was interesting for sure, but we learned a lot. So, so one of the things I thought was interesting, or we could talk about for a second, is how you know, in cases such as this, or cases that are so distant. Um, a lot of times sources won't be as open and agreeing to, to talk about something that happened 25 years ago, whether they've moved on, whether they, um, you know, something else is more important. But it seems like this is one that, that goes against that, that everybody we approach in some way, obviously they might be a little bit more reserved than others. But, you know, law enforcement is a great example of that. You'll sometimes you approach law enforcement folks, and they say, you know, that was 25 years ago, or the case is closed. Obviously, this is still an active investigation, but, you know, what was the sense that y'all got when you approached a source? Was there hesitancy, or was it, you know, it seems like everyone, I guess what I'm getting at, has a shared interest in hoping that Mm -hmm. 
you're going to find something or William's going to find something or them speaking to you again will will brush something up in their mind of a detail they missed. You know, is that just, am I kind of making that up or did y'all get that sense? That- Dealing with the law, you know, especially the law enforcement side, I mean, even though it is an old case and it's still an active case, so they can't really talk about certain things about it. You know, they're all, won't, you know, they would love to have this solved. I mean, that's one of the things that Bart told both me and Emma, mm-hmm. you know, that there, there's a couple of cases, a couple of missing person cases that, you know, he's dealt with over the past 25 or 27 years that he would love to see resolved before he retired. You know, and this is one of those cases. I hon- and I honestly think that they're, they're just really curious. I mean, they're just really curious about what happened and they know certain things and they don't know others. And um, like when I went and, and talked to Bart, Chuck, uh, McDougal, who's Tupelo Police Department's public information officer. Yes. He, um, you know, and I don't know if he does this, sits in on interviews a lot but, or whatever, but he was like, do you guys mind? I'm just really interested. You know, I just really want to, you know, really want to hear, hear more about it or whatever. He seemed like, like he well, was. Well, see, he's one of those people who has been around the case sort of just on the edge. Right. For 20 years. I mean, he remembers when it happened. Right. And, he, and he would, you know, he's a, you know, one of those folks who would love to have... You know, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, Rick Hammond was saying, you know, that every time, you know, he gets a call from somebody about this, it, you know, the first thing in his head is, you know, has somebody come forward? Mm-hmm. Has there been a new break? Has it been solved? Yeah. You know, and I can, I can remember, you know, back through the mid-90s, you know, working in newspapers here, every time there was a body found. That's what y'all thought. The first thing that came through everybody's mind was, is it Leochi? Yeah. Yeah. Rick was, um, he told us that he even gets, he still gets calls. Like every few years, someone will call him and ask him about Leochi or, um, you know, want to talk about the case or whatever. And so that was really interesting, um, to hear from him. But as far as other people, I mean, most people that I contacted were very willing to talk like her classmates, um, you know, people, just friends or her teacher that we talked to, um, I think they all were kind of like, we don't know what happened. We'd love to know. Mm-hmm. Sure, we'll talk to you. I mean, I, I really didn't run into a lot of people who were, um, I don't know, closed off about it or against it. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, for her family, it's a little different. I'm sure it's right. very difficult to talk about um, even still. And so when I talked to her father, Donald, he was a little hesitant at first, but, um, but he came around and I'm really glad he did because we had some good conversations and, um, was really glad to have him sort of be part of the story. Yeah. I think he's, he's a powerful voice in that, um, talk about what it was like, you know, getting a chance to, to pick his brain and also just hear some of those testimonials from him about, you know, what this case means to him and, um, and what, how he's dealt with it over the last 25 years. Yeah, um, it was it was really interesting just to talk to him. You know, I, you kind of you approach that with caution. You know, I don't. At first, I was kind of had to feel it out and didn't really know like how comfortable he was going to be. Um, but you know, especially I think when we talked just about Lee herself and and said, "Hey, like tell us about her," um, that was really really moving to hear him just talk about her and say, you know, she loved this and recall memories and things like that. Um, and then just to hear his own perspective on, um, you know, what happened and being here and searching and, and something else that was really interesting to me was his, he talked a lot about the community. Um, 
and we have some of that in the podcast, but we did talk about that a little more than what's in there. Um, and he, you know, he said that people were just really welcoming to him and, um, really willing to just offer their help in any way. Um, they were taking up, you know, money to help him pay for his hotel that he was staying at here. They were feeding him. They were, um, coming out, you know, in huge groups to help him search. And so he said, you know, even all these years later, Tupelo, I love Tupelo. I mean, I just think about it and it, even though it was such a sad time, um, it still really sort of sit, stays with me that, that Tupelo has been, was such a good welcoming place for him. So, um, not, you know, not the easiest interview because it's hard for him to talk about. So it's kind of, you have to figure that out. But, um, but I was really glad that, that he wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. How about you with, with Vicky? Obviously we, we didn't, weren't able to record that, uh, and she wasn't as forthcoming. Um, That's right. Like, we don't want to jump to conclusions on for, why. I mean, for the past 25 years, McDonald has always, the father, Donald Ochi, has been forthcoming. He's been willing to talk to the media. Vicky, on the other hand, I mean, she's talked to the media to some degree over the years, you know, but she's always been a little aloof. And, you know, she lived here for a while. And then finally, you know, moved away, part of the military. And, you know, it took me a while to run her down. You know, it's just, you know, these days you can't just pull, pick up a phone book and say, all right, well, where's Vicki Felton now? Mm-hmm. So I, mean, I finally ran her down. You know, she was living, you know, in Michigan with her parents. Called. All right, she's not here. She talked to the mother. The mother said, yeah, she'll call you back. And, you know, sure enough, I mean, she did call me back and she was willing to talk. But, you know, when I tried to ask her specific questions about something, she would, would stop and say, you know, I've already discussed that. Mm-hmm. I've already gone over that before. I'm not going to repeat myself. And, it's like, you know, I've tried to explain to her, oh, well, this is the first time I've written a story on this case. You know, and she says, well, I've done the interview with the journal before, so I'm just not going to repeat that. So, you know, that, that was kind of disheartening because I, mean, I wanted to get some more new information. But that was one of the things, you know, Looking back, you know, and Rick Hammond's coverage, you know, from 25 years ago, there were very few quotes from the mother in the reporting. It was, there was almost nothing, you know, with her saying, you know, this is how I felt about what was happening. Or, this is what we did. Mm-hmm. You know, it was all secondhand through the police department. It was all reported, you know, that the mother told the police that they you know, woke up that morning in the same bed. They had breakfast. She went to work, and they were going to go out and have, you know, celebrate that night. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was trying to get some more information from Vicky. She just was not that forthcoming. And, you know, again, you know, it's, it's a hard subject. You know, it's you don't want to say, you know, put words in anybody's mouth. But, you know, She's been dealing with this for 25 years, and so it's, sure. it's, it's, it's a tough subject to talk about, and I can see where, you know, there's some things that she probably just doesn't want to bring up anymore. Yeah, it's it's understandably difficult for her. You know, but uh, you, she still holds out hope, you know, that, you know, Leah's alive somewhere. She holds out hope, you know, that someday, you know, this case will be resolved. Yeah. You know, it's funny, I mean, you know, researching this, I'm sure Emma did the same thing, I and mean, you, you start trying to look up stuff on the Internet, you know, trying to do searches and find where other folks have been interviewed before and there's a lot of stuff out there that folks mm-hmm. have talked about with their own theories you know and I you know I asked 
Vicky about that, she you know, she just doesn't even bother looking at any of that. All, all because, you know, it's just disturbing and there's so much misinformation out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think, you know, one of the fact that she has always been sort of aloof is, is one of the reasons why so many people, you know, just in the general public sort of lean to the fact that they think the mother did it. Mm-hmm. And I know that was one of the things, you know, as soon as we put information out there on social media saying, all right, well, we're going to have this podcast coming up. A lot of the uh, first comments were the mother did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's kind of the most, uh, I would say common theory. theory. You know, I think most, I think a lot of people think that, and I think a lot, you know, for the reason that you said that she well, was, you, you the mother and the daughter lived alone at the house. Right. The mother left. You know, and then next thing you know, the police mm-hmm. show up and the daughter's missing. There's blood everywhere. Well, and when you don't have a lot of information, you sort of fill in those gaps yourself. So people, I think, have done that and come to that conclusion. Um, you know, I think that's probably, I think most people probably think that she was involved or that she did it. The other interesting thing to me about this case, we talked earlier about Tupelo's connection to it. Uh, when you talk to people, it, it's not only a mention of where they were that day or, or where they were living or how they knew about the case. It's also a theory and a rumor. Mm-hmm. It, it, they always go hand in hand, um, and, and you don't always get that about a case. And obviously this one's different because there are so many question marks around it. Um, but I think that speaks to, to what you've seen and what we've seen on just strictly social media when we yeah, put well, it out you know, there. They had the theories, all right, well, you know, was she killed, buried somewhere hidden, or was she just abducted? Is she really out there somewhere? You know, some of the stranger ones are, you know, they'd say, you know, Emma saw this one you know, that she was buried in a new high school. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, it's a running. That's a common one, right? It's a yeah, common one. It's with, a pretty but common the problem rumor. is, you know, the, that school opened just a couple to days. Students a couple of days later. So, you know, the, the school was done. So, I mean, there's no. Wet concrete or anything, you know, again, you know, this is during the middle, the tail end of a hurricane running through. And they wouldn't be out there laying any concrete for someone, yeah. Yeah, you, you wait for dry weather to pour concrete. Yeah. So that, that's... And that's the one, kids at T-Ball High School, even now, know about the Leochi case because of that, because people will say, you know, she's she's under this building or things like that. And so like, that's how those kids know about this case. And it's totally misinformation. Again, that, but back it, to that urban myth. I mean, yeah, there, there's some, some theories that have been espoused for so long. I mean, it's one of those things where you hear it enough times, it sort of gains a little element of truth just from repetition. Yeah. Sure. It's very much. And I think especially for like the younger kids now who have heard about it, it's very much an urban legend type thing where I don't know if they really realize, like, that she was a real person, you know, that she was this real girl who actually something happened to or something bad happened. Or know any of the facts around the case. They exactly, just know the yeah. legend part. Yeah. And I think that's what, correct me if I'm wrong, but when y'all were talking about sort of the, the narrative arc that you wanted to put into the podcast, you specifically wanted an episode and interviews about her mm-hmm. to sort of humanize it because I think it's very easy to detach, especially 25 years later, or for children who weren't around to just think of it as this rumor and, and this kind of myth. Um, yeah. But, you know, talk about the reporting that she did to really try and, and paint this picture of who she was, um, you know, as this 13-year-old girl. 
Yeah, we've done some of that um, in some stories in the past that I saw, um, especially uh, J.B. Clark, who used to be our crime reporter. He did one, I think, in 2012. Um, and he did he had interviewed some of her friends and things like that. Um, but, yeah, that was, I think, for me, the most interesting part because reading back, you know, reading things on the Internet, reading all through the stories that we've had, like, it's very about the case and um, about the mystery of it or whatever, but, you know, we don't really know much about Lee herself. Um, and so I thought it was really interesting to hear, you know, she was um, just little details, like her teacher said that she was really good at math, you know, or, um, you know, she really loved horses. I had heard that before, but um, she was really into that. And, and one of her classmates actually sent me some photos of her from a school trip that they took to Florida. And so that was kind of cool to see these photos of her with her classmates. And she was like, um, looks like they were by like an aquarium touch pool or something. And she really, um, apparently she really loved animals according to all her friends. So I thought that was kind of neat. Um, and she, you know, just to see that she was like a normal nineties, kid. I mean, she's wearing like a fanny pack and like a cool jacket and it's just, you know, it, it was, it, it was just really nice to, to sort of hear from people. It humanized it. Yeah. Like she was just a regular girl. Like she was like had her birthday party at the arcade and, um, you know, I'm sure that was like the cool thing to do. And she, I think we talk about her boyfriend got her some earrings that had cats on them and she had a pet cat and, you know, I mean, she's just a normal girl. Um, that unfortunately something really bad happened to you. But we we really tried to do that um, in the podcast, and, and I think it worked out pretty well. Um, and a lot of people, you know, I've heard from a lot of people. I, I couldn't interview everyone, but I did hear from a lot of people who were like, I knew Lee, um, I went to school with her. And even if you look at the comments on, you know, our stuff on social media, people will say, I remember Lee, like such a sweet girl. We went to school together or she was in my class or she came over to my house. And so, um, you know, people remember her, um, as, as Lee and as herself. And so I hope that we sort of helped reinforce that in some way, you know, I don't know. I just, I think that was a really cool part of the story. For well, me. I think, you know, talking to the friends that showed that it had a bigger impact than just right on the on the family. I mean, that was one of the interesting things. I was sitting there, you know, look going over your interviews with these friends and saying, you know, it was hard to believe, you know, that, that something like this could have happened to one of mm -hmm. our friends, somebody our age. Yeah. You know, and that aspect, you know, still haunts people today that are I mean, I was doing an interview yesterday on something totally separate. Mm-hmm. And the subject of the podcast came up and the girl was saying, you know, you know, I was one year older than Leochi, mm -hmm. you know, and we couldn't believe that something like that could happen. Mm -hmm. you know, and she was saying that, you know, that I used to go riding four wheelers out in the woods before that. But after Lee disappeared, you know, she was scared to go riding four wheelers in the woods thinking they might stumble upon a body. Right. You know, it's, it's you know, the, there, there are other aspects of this whole disappearance. You know, it touched a lot of different people different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, and when you're sitting there talking to the, you know, the classmates saying, you know, it's hard to believe, you know, that something like that happened to somebody we know. Not only did it happen to somebody, you know, could it happen to us? Right. Yeah. And one of the, um, Bart Phelps was one of her classmates and one of her friends. Um, and I talked to him a lot and he was saying that they, so they had, she would have graduated high school with him and they had their 
20-year reunion this summer. And they have like a Facebook group, you know, and they, I guess, were planning the reunion in Facebook or whatever. And he said he when he posted, you know, hey, do you guys remember um, anything about Leochi? You know, I guess he he was looking for stuff because um, he was going to be talking to me. And he said that he just got like an overwhelming response. And so I just think it's, you know, it's really obviously very sad. The whole story is very sad and, and tragic. But even 25 years later, people are still like in this Facebook group talking about her and mm-hmm. talking about not just what happened to her, but talking about like remembering that they ate lunch with her one time or that they sat on the bus with her and you know, just things like that. I thought it was mm-hmm. neat to see that she herself had an impact outside of just this sort of mystery of what happened to her, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the medium itself of the podcast really helps, you know, apart from that being mentioned in previous stories and and William doing some of that in his stories of sort of painting this picture, you know, hearing those people get emotional when they talk about her Mm -hmm. and who she was to me as a listener um, really just puts you more in the perspective of who she was and and how much that meant to everybody that knew her. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought that was, that was powerful stuff. Yeah, and those were, you know, those were not easy interviews. Jordan, her boyfriend, that one was a, he was a great, it was so great to talk to you. I mean, he was very open and and really, um, you know, you could tell that he really loved, um, he really wanted to to talk about Lee and, but he, he got emotional and that was kind of, you know, that's always tough. You don't really know what to do. You're sort of, I don't know, but it was, that was a tough one. Um, and you hear that in the podcast from him, yeah, especially. Yeah. So, um, it's definitely a powerful moment in the series. Yeah. All right. So honest question here at any point in this, in your reporting, your reporting, you know, throughout the going back of case files, talking to people, is there ever a, a glimmer or a thought that, that you might find something that nobody else has found that you might hear something that you We'll put in this story or tell law enforcement that that's going to break this thing open. I mean, as a reporter, I mean, you, you would you would like to do that, and you know, and going through some of the stuff, you know, you know, going back and looking through old court cases with the uh, you know Vicky's potential suspect, the guy that she believes had something to do with it. You know, looking back on those court cases where he was, you know, he pleaded guilty to a very similar incident. You know, just. Yeah, a couple of years after Lee disappeared, I think, and it makes you think. All right, well, maybe this guy did have something to do with it. You know, maybe they need to look further into that. You know, but the problem is, you know, this guy's sitting at you know state penitentiary at Parchman right now mm-hmm. for an unrelated unrelated crime. You know, and he's supposed to be released in March of two thousand twenty or twenty twenty. You know, he has never really talked to a police. He's got nothing to gain from talking to the police. So, I mean, that's one of those things where you, are, you wonder, all right, well, did he have anything to do with it? But you never know. you know. And then there, you always hear the other question, you know, how much did the mother have to do with it? Mm-hmm. And you, you wonder, right, well, you start looking back, all right, well, you find something that, you know, somehow somebody else missed. Yeah, I think the hardest thing is, as far as, like, finding new information, it's really like what what we have and what's out there seemed to be at first really what there was, you know? I mean, it's like, you're like, okay, like we've, we've read this before, we know this and that and whatever. And 
I think, yeah, the most interesting thing for me was looking after William went and got those court records, looking through those, um, just because there were a lot of similarities and it kind of, you kind of just wonder like, does anyone else know about this? You know, does, Mm -hmm. do they know that this is so similar? Um, that was kind of one of those things for me. And then, you know, there were some friends that I talked to that said things that I was just like, that just seems really weird. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, those things were, to me, were like, you know, you're not like a a glimmer. Like you said, I guess, um, that those, I don't know, but it's, it's a challenging thing because it's a 25 year old case. So like most of the official information is, is there and it's out there and it's been there. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the things I think challenging or one of the challenges about it was trying to tell the story without it feeling too much, just like a, a rehash, rehash of what that, we that already was one know. Of the you know. I was running into, and you, and you know, whenever you run across something that's new to you, you have to wonder. All right, well, do the police already know about that? And they just, and have known about it for right. for twenty five years and just never really right. come forward that much with that aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah, and I mean, of course. One of the things, I guess, in the podcast, really, that plays a big role is um, Joanne's story that she, you know, that she thinks that she saw her on the day she went missing. Um, And so in that sense, I mean, that was new information um, to police. And so that sort of was something that we didn't know what was going to happen with that because I, I told them about it, you know, when I started working on the project and then didn't really know what was going to happen with that. So that was something sort of, we just kept our eye on and we're t- sort of wondering the whole time, you know, mm-hmm. is that going to become something or is that just going to be, you know, this other story or, right. or something else know. added to the four boxes of right. evidence yeah, that and was... case files that they have at Tupelo mm-hmm. Police Department. Right. And the, and the thing about that was, I mean, um, you know, I'm sure they've, I'm sure they've heard a million stories about people, sure. you know, who think that they saw her here and there or whatever. But, um, but I think it was the compelling thing about it was that she, it stuck with her and she hadn't gotten to tell someone, right. you know, or to tell the police. And she, she really wanted that. And, and they came and they interviewed her last week. And so that was, um, you know, I talked to her on Friday and she was like, that was, I was really glad to kind of have it off my chest. I mean, she had called and left messages and things like that. And, and we don't know if those fell through the cracks or if that just, you know, sometimes things happen. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think for her to be able to sit down face to face with someone and tell them the story, um, and for them to be like, thank you, you know, we'll, we're going to write this down and just take that. Mm -hmm. She was really happy about that. Yeah. And I thought it was a nice, a nice sort of, I guess you could say closure to that aspect of the podcast too. Sure. It was nice to be able to have some sort of ending or conclusion to that part of it. Yeah. Not nice at the time having to go back and re-record. Right. Uh, for, right. For the Friday. listeners who don't know, that that was a late ad on Friday. Friday when, afternoon. Friday afternoon before the Sunday drop. So yeah, but, but obviously was... wanted to get the most. Inf- relevant information in there and up to date. So. Well, it, goes, it, I mean, it goes back to the fact, you know, the police department say you know, they still get tips and calls on mm-hmm. this case. Mm-hmm. 
You know, oh, I'm they, sure. Every year they still get, you know, and each one they have to, no matter you know how frivolous it might seem, they do call, try to follow up on and check in. You know, and it's still an active case. That was one of the things when we wanted to get some pictures, you know, of the police chief with some of these boxes. Mm-hmm. You know, they were the chief and the chief detectives were going through some of the boxes, and you know, there's st- it's a still an active case, and they're still working on transferring all these old pictures that they had into a digital format. Transfer, you know, there was, some of the interviews were done on micro cassettes. They're working to get those transferred into an MP3 format. Mm-hmm. You know, they're trying to get all this changed over to a digital format, you know, so that, you know, somebody down the line will still be able to, you know, look at this information as part of this case, you know, if something new does come up, mm-hmm. you know, that they'll be able to easily access the files, you know, and it won't be, you know, a 25 year old photographic print that is faded and you no longer can tell what's going on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I hadn't thought about that, about how they have to sort of keep up with that. You know, I, I, I'm thinking about how, like, you get your old home movies put on DVDs or whatever. And it's, that's, it's, just, it's the same concept. I hadn't concept. thought about that they had to do that. That's To preserve. You know, and there's yeah. hours and hours of, you know, videotaped interviews. Yeah. You know, on VHS tapes that they're having to go back Right. And, you so know, you get converted sh- into a digital format so that, you know, the next investigator mm-hmm. can, you know, pull it up on their computer and watch it because, you know, who has a VCA? You know, who has a VCR anymore? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, and the other thing they're doing, they're, they're getting ready to try to start going back and scanning all the, the handwritten interview sheets and mm-hmm. statements. They'll try to scan those into the digital form so that somebody can pull those up on a computer, an iPad, or whatever, mm-hmm. and go over those. Right. Yeah, I think that speaks volumes to the the um, importance that they still place on the case. You know, it, you you see that sometimes with law enforcement where they might say, yeah, it's an active case, but, you know, they'll sort of brush it aside. But, again, in your interviews and, and what y'all got for the podcast, it still very much seems like they're they're interested and they're invested in – at least seeing this thing through when tips do come in uh, or when some new relevant information. Yeah, one of the comments I remember, you know, uh, Major Ronnie Thomas, I mean, he was the lead detective on the case for 17 years until he retired, you know, and he intentionally kept the boxes of the case files, you know, two boxes sitting there in his office so that every day he would look at them and see them, you know, and just for, you know, at least for a second would stop and remember, okay, there's a little girl who's missing. No, we still need to work on that. Mm-hmm. It's powerful stuff. All right. Well, thank you all again for your work on the case. I think this was uh, obviously you don't set out on a project like this to to be the ones to solve it, um, but you do set out to tell some interesting stories and put a face behind who she was, catch up with law enforcement, and talk about how seriously they take the case. So. I definitely think y'all accomplished that, uh, and hopefully listeners, I think even from the feedback we've gotten so far, uh, appreciate the work that y'all have done, um, and certainly to, to Chris for his production of it, and to JB, you mentioned earlier, for doing the, the music, and so yes, many others yes. who have worked on this project. I mean, that that's the other thing that we, we didn't talk about, um, but I mean, this was not a 
fly by the seat of our pants. Um, you know, again, to not tooting our own horn, but y'all been working on this thing for six months. Um, so I think that definitely conveys in the, in the interviews that you have and the quality that's there. Um, so thank y'all for investing in, in this for so long. Um, I think it definitely turned out well. well yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for letting me do it. <laughs> for letting us do it. <laughs> so, yeah. You can good. listen on Apple Podcast, Google Play, uh, or on djournal.com backslash open podcast, wherever else you listen to podcasts. This is Emma again. Look for another bonus episode coming soon. We're going to do a Q&A. So we want to hear from you. Uh, send us your questions at openpodcast at journalinc.com. That's journalinc.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon.